Welcome to East Hills Alliance Church. Real people experiencing real change because of a real Savior. We're going to start with a, a little straw poll uh, this, this morning. Uh, uh, a little participation interaction here by show of hands. And for those of you online, you can just type in your answer. This is the international sign for type in your answer, by the way. Uh, so any statement that starts with, there are two kinds of people, is an oversimplification and probably not true. There are two kinds of people in the world. <laughs> uh, there are the people who, when they take family and friends out to lunch, they go to the new place they just heard about, try out the new cool thing. And there are the people who, when they take family and friends out to lunch, they're going to make sure they go to a place that's familiar, tried and true. I know what's on the menu. I know the service is going to be good. So the people who tend toward the familiar or tend toward the new place. So what I'm curious about, by a show of hands, is which one uh, you are and and we'll let the people who like the new and different go first. So uh, how many of you, by show of hands, when you're taking family and friends out, you would, now look, I know there's more than two options. You're going to fall somewhere in the middle, and somebody's going to try to pick answer C that doesn't exist in this quiz, okay? All right, so I just, I can see people's wheels turning. Well, I don't really, okay, just pick one. Okay, so uh, by show of hands, which of you, when taking family and friends out to lunch or dinner, you love to try the new place, see how it goes? Okay, okay, some risk takers, some risk takers. And uh, then by show of hands, how many people uh, like the familiar place? We got two hands, a lot of people, yes, okay. Uh, yeah, we, we like the familiar. Uh, okay, um, uh, I'm gonna take a hard right turn from restaurants uh, to psychological terms. Um, but it'll make sense why in a second. I want to introduce a psychological term to us this morning that maybe some of you know. The term is cognitive fluency. Cognitive fluency. And the definition of cognitive fluency is a measure of how easy it is to think about something. Cognitive fluency, a measure of how easy it is to think about something. So according to one article I read, it says, quote, our brains are lazy, the easier something is to understand, the more likely we are to believe it. According to psychologists, any situation where we are required to weigh information, for example, voting, buying, or marriage, is influenced by cognitive fluency. In other words, the easier it is to think about something, or sorry, the more familiar something is, the more familiar something is, the easier it is to think about, okay? So whether that's a brand or a menu or a website, the more familiar something is, the easier it is on our brains. Now, people have studied this, and I'm not sure who paid for these studies or if they do to anybody any good, but I can now quote some things. <laughs> One study showed that if your company's name on the stock exchange, like that little abbreviation, if that's pronounceable, that little abbreviation, your stock is more likely to do well. Again, I don't know why they study this. I don't know that that's actually true, but it's what the study says. People are shaking their head like, that cannot be right. I don't, I don't, I don't know. That's what it says. Another study says, and I, I do firmly believe this one, Another study said 
that if you present information in clean and clear font, people are more likely to believe you are telling the truth. The truth is a powerful thing to communicate through clean and clear font. One study even showed that if you have a familiar name in your society, like John or Steve or Josh, that people are more likely to find you trustworthy. Now, whether that's a good idea or not may be a different thing, but people are more likely to find you trustworthy. So if uh, you've ever been mad at your parents for giving you your super unique name, now you have a reason to be mad at them. Like, look, mom, nobody trusts me, and it's all your fault because you gave me this name. Okay. Building up families, one sermon at a time. Uh, The truth is that whether the thing we're familiar with is actually more comfortable, more correct, more true, we feel more comfortable in that space. Uh, Today, we're going to talk about a story about familiarity, but it also is a story that may be very familiar to some of you. So if this is a familiar story, I'm gonna ask you to try to set aside the familiarity for a few minutes here and see what God may want to do new through this story in your heart and mind. Uh, We've been talking about how God meets us in the deserts of our lives. That when we wrestle with our doubts and our questions, he promises to stay with us. That God meets us in our solitude and promises that we are not alone. God meets us in our shame and promises that we are forgiven and loved. Last week, we talked about Moses, who is a hero of the faith in three different major world religions. But we talked about the Moses before he was a hero, when Moses was a murderer on the run, ashamed and hiding, until God met him in a desert, met him in his shame, and he promised purpose and forgiveness. God saw a hero in Moses. Moses saw a failure, somebody who'd messed up too badly. Moses saw his shame. And God called Moses to lead the Hebrew people, the people of Israel, Moses's people, out of slavery in Egypt, And Moses said, God, I can't. God, I can't. And God didn't disagree with him. He also didn't agree with him. He just said, Moses, I'll I'll do it. I will. God, I, I can't. Moses, I'll do it. I just need you to go. Eventually, Moses does go to Egypt And he uses his brother Aaron as a spokesperson. And together, they watch God do miracle after miracle. Sometimes amazing, sometimes painful interactions with the people of Egypt to cause the people of Egypt to let the Hebrew people go. Eventually, through, uh, through Moses, through God's interactions, through God's miraculous move, the king of Egypt, the pharaoh, decides to let all of the Hebrew slaves, the people of Israel, go free. Now Moses had told them, if you will come out of Egypt, there is a promised land 
for you. God has a promised land for you, a place of protection and provision, a place where there is plenty to eat and drink and a life, an abundant life to live. You just have to come out of Egypt. And so Pharaoh sends them out and they start their journey toward this promised land. And almost immediately they run into a dead end because this tribe, this small nation of people comes across a large body of water and they can't go around it and they can't go through it. Meanwhile, Pharaoh has changed his mind and he and his army are tracking them down from behind. To kill them or bring them back, we don't know, but they are now hemmed in between this water and this army. And again, through Moses, God intervenes and he has Moses hold his arms out over the water and he peels back the water so that they're able to walk across on dry land. And after all of the people of Israel have gotten across and Pharaoh's army is chasing them through, these, through uh, this peeled back water, the water collapses on Pharaoh's army and they drown. And God has fully set them free from Egypt. Now there is a tribe of people in the desert and everything is unfamiliar. Everything is unfamiliar. The landmarks, the routines, the dangers, everything is different. So we're gonna pick up the story of these celebrating, confused, uncomfortable people from there. And I'm gonna be uh, in Exodus chapter 15. Exodus is the second book of the Bible. I'm going to start in chapter 15, verse 22. Uh, if you're new to scripture, uh, by all means, feel free to grab a Bible, find that second book of the Bible. Uh, those big numbers uh, are the chapter numbers. So big number 15, the little numbers are the verse numbers. Little number 22. So I'm starting in Exodus 15, 22. Then Moses led the people of Israel away from the Red Sea, and they moved out into the desert of Shur, they traveled in this desert for three days without finding any water. When they came to the oasis of Marah, the water was too bitter to drink. So they named the place Marah, which means bitter. Then the people complained and turned against Moses. What are we going to drink, they demanded. So Moses cried out to the Lord for help, and the Lord showed him a piece of wood. Moses threw it into the water, and this made the water good to drink. It was there at Marah that the Lord set before them the following decree as a standard to test their faithfulness to him. He said, if you will listen carefully to the voice of the Lord your God and do what is right in his sight, obeying his commands and keeping all his decrees, then I will not make you suffer any of the diseases I sent on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord who heals you. After leaving Marah, the Israelites traveled on to the oasis of Elam, where they found 12 springs and 70 palm trees. And they camped there beside the water. God has rescued them. He has parted the sea. He has made bitter water good. And he promises, based on what he's proven, based on what he has already done, that he will protect them and provide for them. And then he leads them to an oasis, a place of life in the middle of the desert with springs and palm trees Shade and water, protection and provision. And almost immediately, the people start complaining again. 
Very next verse is the first verse of chapter 16. Then the whole community of Israel set out from Elam and journeyed into the wilderness of Sin. Which, side note, I know it looks like the word sin. This is not an English word. This is the root of Mount Sinai. So it's the area around that mountain. So it has nothing to do with the English word. Okay. So they journeyed into the wilderness of Sin between Elam and Mount Sinai. They arrived there on the 15th day of the second month, one month after leaving the land of Egypt. There too, the whole community of Israel complained about Moses and Aaron. If only the Lord had killed us back in Egypt, they moaned. There we sat around pots filled with meat and ate all the bread we wanted. But now you have brought us into this wilderness to starve us all to death. To review, God does miracles to get them out. He parts the Red Sea to help them escape. He turns bitter water pure with a piece of wood and he gives them an oasis respite. And the next time they get hungry, they get cranky. Now, I feel this one, okay? I, I get cranky when I get hungry too. This is a whole tribe of people getting hangry, okay? So they, they want their food and they want it now. And so they start complaining and begging that God would let them go back. Why didn't God just leave us in Egypt where all we did was sit around all day and eat meat and bread and it was wonderful, What part of their experience in Egypt are they forgetting? Go ahead and shout it out if you know it. The slavery. This feels like a significant detail to forget a month late. It's been a month, right? We're not talking about generations. A month. Oh, we just sat around eating all day. It was glorious. And it's fascinating to me. They don't even want to go back to the oasis. They don't want to go back to Elam. They don't want to go back to Mara where the water's pure. Now they... They, they want to go all the way back to Egypt. They want to go all the way back to what was familiar. Now, look, I get why the familiar is more comfortable. I definitely count myself in the people who would likely go to the familiar restaurant. I'm very slow to change. If it ain't broke, don't fix it. And I can duct tape a lot of life's problems together, okay? I get it. But there are ways in which the familiar can actually be really harmful. And I want to talk about some of those ways this morning. What do we do, or different ways, when the familiar becomes harmful? Again, I like the familiar. It's known, it's comfortable, it's predictable, but it can really hurt us. And one of the ways that the familiar can be harmful is when we aren't honest about it when we aren't honest about it, when you want so badly to move back to your hometown that you just remember all the good things and you forget about all the awful stuff that happens in that town and you turn it into Mayberry in your own mind, when you so want everybody to love your favorite restaurant so you will not agree with the obvious fact that the service is terrible and you don't care because you like the people, but but you can't even agree with everybody else that service is just awful. When your bad habit is ruining your marriage, but it's comfortable and familiar, so you just convince yourself everything is fine. It's fine. It's totally, totally fine. When you look back at where you used to live, 
and you remember all the good things and forget the slavery part. (laughs) The familiar becomes harmful when we aren't honest about it. I think it becomes especially harmful when we're comparing the past to our present. A very silly example. I actually said the words in an actual conversation this week, back in my day, so apparently I've gotten to that age. Uh, Worse, I said it about hostess ding-dongs. Okay, so I'm in a conversation with my nine-year-old where she's telling me about the hostess ding-dongs, those little cupcakes that are filled with some substance of questionable origin. Okay. And she's telling me about all the flavors of hostess ding-dongs. Now, look. So here, the full statement was, back in my day, hostess ding-dongs were just chocolate. Because as far as I know, that was true. Now they're fruit-flavored, which sounds horrific, actually. Uh, She says, the grape ones definitely do not try the grape ones. Very gross, which I could have told her. She says, the lime ones are delicious, which I refuse to agree with without even trying it. I, that's, uh, well, so confession, I don't actually like the chocolate ones. So here I am debating with her about how the fruit ones are gross. I don't even, I don't even like the chocolate. I'm comparing today's clearly problematic hostess ding-dong flavor choices to a yesterday that I didn't even actually like. <laughs> and yet I'm trying to draw comparisons between the two. Okay, maybe a slightly less silly example. As a pastor in different facets of ministry through the years, uh, I've had lots of people offer suggestions for doing certain things. We should sing this song. We should engage in this ministry. We should uh, uh, face this issue, whatever it may be. And, and uh, those suggestions in and of themselves are, are fantastic. Please don't hear me say, don't ever give another suggestion. That's not what I'm saying at all. Because uh, some of those suggestions, God has absolutely worked through to do beautiful, wonderful things. I've had a realization about these suggestions, though, through the years, because these suggestions often come with a story about back when. Okay, so I, I want to do this ministry. We want to sing this thing. We, we want to have this style of stuff because back when it worked really well. And oftentimes what has happened is that I just don't think that method from back when is going to work as well today. But my realization as I've collected these stories over the years, not really, I'm not like writing them down. I'm just saying that as they've come in over the years. My realization is oftentimes that person's suggestion comes from the high point or some significant high point in their relationship with Jesus. We sang this song at camp and I just knew that Jesus loved me. I can feel his presence in that space. I was a part of this evangelism ministry and we saw person after person after person come to faith in Jesus. I was a part of this Bible study and we learned so much and we grew so much and we did life together and we cared for each other. It was fantastic. And we remember the good and and sometimes we forget that that camp high was great, but we came back unprepared for the world we actually had to face 
And so many of us drifted away from those commitments we made at camp. That evangelism ministry was fantastic, but we were so busy finding other people to bring into the kingdom, which is great that we never matured in our faith. And half of us who are part of that ministry have now wandered away and aren't even sure what we believe anymore. That Bible study was so great, but we turned insular and we never reached out to anybody else. We were a part of a church where everybody knew everybody else's name and it was fantastic, but everybody knew everybody else's name because nobody knew ever came. And if they did, they weren't part of what was in and what we were doing. We remember the good and we forget the bad. And then we wonder why this moment that God has crafted for us can't compare to the memories that we've crafted for us. Along those same lines, the familiar is harmful when it makes us ungrateful. The familiar is harmful when it makes us ungrateful. When we can't see the good that God is doing now because we keep looking back at what used to be. When we dismiss the open doors that God is putting in front of us because we're still checking the doors behind us to see if any of them will open back up again to see if we can head back through one of those doors to something that feels more familiar and comfortable. And sometimes our obsession with glorifying the familiar makes us bitter and ungrateful about what we have now. For the people of Israel, in this case of their bitterness and lack of gratitude, God actually responds to their complaint. It's the very next verse in Exodus 16. Verse four. Then the Lord said to Moses, look, I'm going to rain down food from heaven for you. Each day the people can go out and pick up as much food as they need for that day. I will test them in this to see whether or not they follow my instructions. On the sixth day, they will gather food and when they prepare it, there will be twice as much as usual, usual. God has walked them out of Egypt through the Red Sea, made bitter water clean. The people are now bitter and ungrateful and lying to themselves about what the past looked like. And God's response is to rain down food from heaven for them. How good is that? That night, a huge flock of quail come and land in the camp and make themselves available for dinner. Not as the guests, by the way, but like as the actual food, just in case that wasn't clear. Like they are the dinner. Okay, so quail come in, they're the dinner. The next morning they wake up, there is dew all over the ground. That part, fine, normal, that happens here too. When the dew evaporates, they leave, it leaves behind these flakes and they go out to investigate and they go, what is that? And so they name it the Hebrew word for what is that? They call it manna. What is this stuff? And they're only supposed to collect enough for them and their family for that day. But let's be real. If you tell people who have been chronically hungry, don't worry, there'll be food tomorrow. They're not going to trust that. So they collect a whole bunch extra. And the next morning, it's full of maggots and worms and gross, rotting, nasty, okay? All their extra gone. 
So they go out and they collect more. Enough for that day, enough for that day. Until day six, where God has said, hey, on day seven, you're going to rest. So on day six, when I provide this food, it's gonna last for two days. So collect two days worth. I know, I know I told you the other five days, collect just that day's worth, it all goes bad. Today, collect two days worth, and I promise it's gonna stick around because God's provision will match God's instructions, okay? So, so they go out and collect on day six and they collect twice as much, just like they had on day one. And the next morning, it's still good. Apparently tastes like honey wafers and they get to eat. Hopefully it tastes good with quail. I don't know. For some reason, it's not moldy. God has provided. But you better believe there are people who wandered out on day seven to go collect more food and they found nothing. Familiar becomes harmful when it changes our dependence. When it changes our dependence. When we start to think that we don't need help because we've got this all figured out when we start to believe that we don't need a community around us and the wisdom from others because we know enough. I've been doing this for six days. Thank you very much. I know how this works. I got this. For those of us who are Christ followers, when we start to depend on ourselves and not on God, because it's familiar. I've been here. I've done this. Hey, God, go take a nap. Don't worry about it. I got it. Hey, God, you can climb off that throne. I'll, I'll take that seat. I can make the decisions for my life very much. I've been, been doing this a long time. This money, this food, this comfort is mine. I earned it. I don't need to be thankful for it. I don't need to bless others with it. I don't need to be humble about it because I earned this. I did this and I can do it again if I have to. When the familiar makes us feel like we've got it all under control. And, and I really believe that part of the reason familiar feels good is because it lets us feel like we've got things under control. I know this space. I know this menu. I know how to react. I know how to escape. I know all of the things. It's familiar. It's comfortable. I have it under control and when the familiar makes us feel like we've got it all under control, we begin to believe that we only need to believe, we only need to depend on our own control. Case in point, two stories about Moses. In story one, just a chapter later, the people have food, but they get thirsty again. And... Believe it or not, there is more complaining. Exodus chapter 17, verse one. At the Lord's command, the whole community of Israel left the wilderness of Sinai and moved from place to place. Eventually they camped at Rephidim, but there was no water there for the people to drink. So once more, the people complained against Moses. Give us water to drink, they demanded. Quiet, Moses replied. Why are you complaining against me? And why are you testing the Lord? But tormented by thirst, they continued to argue in Moses, why did you bring us out of Egypt? Are you trying to kill us, our children, and our livestock with thirst? 
Then Moses cried out to the Lord, what should I do with these people? They are ready to stone me. It's a telenovela already. Like just, we all need to bring it down a notch here. Moses, the people, they're all a little excited. Bring it down. Okay. The Lord said to Moses, walk out in front of the people. Take your staff, the one you used when you struck the water of the Nile and call some of the elders of Israel to join you. I will stand before you on the rock at Mount Sinai. Strike the rock and water will come gushing out. Then the people will be able to drink. So Moses struck the rock as he was told and water gushed out as the elders looked on. Once again, the people complain and God provides. Amazing. I wanna compare this to a very similar story much later in Israel's journey. I'm gonna be in Numbers chapter 20. Once again, the people have moved from one place to another. Once again, they're very thirsty. And once again, they complain. Numbers chapter 20, verse seven. And the Lord said to Moses, because Moses knew what to do. Moses got this. Look, okay, we've done this before. The the, the thirsty thing, Uh, I go to God. Okay, so Moses goes before God. And the Lord said to Moses, you and Aaron must take the staff and assemble the entire community. As the people watch, speak to the rock over there and it will pour out its water. You will provide enough water from the rock to satisfy the whole community and their livestock. So Moses did as he was told. He took the staff from the place where it was kept before the Lord. Then he and Aaron summoned the people to come and gather at the rock. Listen, you rebels, he shouted. Must we bring you water from this rock? Then Moses raised his hand and struck the rock twice with the staff and water gushed out. So the entire community and their livestock drank their fill. Shout it out when you know it. What did Moses do wrong? He smacked it. God's instructions were to speak to it. But but Moses knew what to do, right? I've done this before. I know the plan. I know the formula. I go to God. God gives me the instructions. I do what he tells me. I smack the rock with my staff. Water comes out. Plus, notice who he gave credit for bringing the water. Must we bring, must we bring you water from this rock, Moses says. Now, I want to note that God blessed anyway. Water miraculously flows from a rock. If God is determined to bless someone else, your disobedience is not enough to stop him. But God makes it very clear to Moses in the ensuing verses that Moses has messed up. That Moses had decided he knew what to do. Do the same thing as I did before and I'll get the same result water. Moses had become dependent on his stick and his experience, on his skills and abilities and tools, on his story, and not on God's word, not on God's instructions. The familiar becomes harmful when it changes our dependence, but also when it stops us from changing. The familiar becomes harmful when we won't 
change. I want to address a phrase that I'm hearing a lot in our society and in the church world right now. Back to normal. Like if we could just get back to the way things were, then everything will be just fine. And I'm not trying to dig into semantics about the words. It's the attitude that comes with it. The attitude of aiming for what was, because Back to normal means aiming for what used to be, not for the new things that God may be doing in our lives. Now look, there's a lot about my life, about our world, about our church that I really like from five, 10 years ago. But let's not pretend that everything was perfect. And let's not miss the doors that God is opening in front of us because we're so busy checking the doorknobs on the doors behind us to see if maybe we can go back through that way. Because that was more familiar and that's more comfortable. We need to wake up and be alert to what God is doing today. Not daydreaming about what used to be or we're gonna wake up on some future tomorrow and realize that we missed it. We missed the things that God is doing now that we could have been a part of. Now, God is gonna bless people, (laughs) whether we're paying attention or not. But we're gonna wake up one day and realize we missed it because we were too focused on trying to get back to something, to try to get to something familiar and comfortable than being open to the new thing that God might want to do in our lives. God has things that he wants to do in you and in me today. And it will take hope and it will take faith and it will take change But here's the truth, near as I can tell. No move of God is ever exactly the same. Throughout scripture, throughout church history, no revival, no miracle, no move of God is ever exactly the same. They overlap, they share characteristics, but it's never exactly the same thing. Because our God is into doing new things, creating new life, creating new opportunities, writing new stories. And God wants to create new life in you and in me. He wants to create new opportunities in us and for us. God is writing new stories in our midst. So here's the question. And you don't need to answer this in this moment, but a question to take with you and answer this week. Are you ready for new? Again, I'm telling you, I, I'm, I'm not usually the biggest fan of change. Some of y'all have heard me say that I'd still be on Word 95 if that was an option. Like, but we're gonna miss it. You're gonna miss it. I'm going to miss it because if our focus and our direction 
The goal of our hearts and minds is to go backwards, to try to find the thing that is more familiar and more comfortable. We're gonna miss the new things that God is doing, the good things that he has in front of us. We're gonna miss the open doors that he has laid in front of us, the opportunities, the stories. God is doing new and good things. God wants to do new and good things in and through you and me. So I want to pray for us and the things that he's doing in and through us, that we would be open to them. Father God, we do want to open our hearts and our minds to you, to give you our lives, to give you ourselves as an act of worship, to be open to the new things you're doing. God, we like many of us familiar and comfortable. God, would you keep the doors behind us that need to stay shut, shut. God, would you direct our attention and our focus and our energy toward you, toward following you wherever you're leading us. through some old methods, through some new methods, through things that feel familiar and things that aren't. God, we want to see you move in our lives and in our community. We want to see a difference made. We want to see testimony stirred up. We want to see grace spread. We want to see the kingdom come alive in our church, in our county. We want to follow you into the new life and growth that you are doing. God, would you turn our face toward you? Would you drag us along? Would you continue to peel back the barriers, the bodies of water that we try to put in our way and in the way of what you're doing? God, would you peel back so you can move in our lives and in our community, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for checking out our podcast. Find out more or connect online at easthillsalliance.org.